from Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to Hollywood Unscripted. I'm Jenny Curtis, and today I am sitting down in person with actor and now director and writer Fran Kranz. Fran is well known for Cabin in the Woods and Dollhouse and Midsummer Night's Dream. He's been on Broadway. And now he is making his directorial debut and his screenwriting debut with a stunning film called Mass, which is in theaters now. Fran Kranz, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, I'm very excited. This is the most professional podcast atmosphere I've ever been in. This is really cool. Thank you. It's really just built for you. We we planned the whole thing right before you got here. I usually start back at the beginning because I love hearing about how the creative process developed. And I know you started acting technically in like third or fourth grade. Yeah, I I mean, um, I guess that's out there. I mean, I must have said that. Uh, (laughs) There was a sort of, you know, man mandatory fourth grade play, whatever. And it was Egyptian gods. And the teacher wanted me to play Isis, a female god. And I said, why do I have to play a girl? That kind of reaction. And he's like, look, I think you can do something really fun. And, you know, I think you'll do something cool with it. And I went ahead and did it. And I, I guess I didn't really have a choice. And then I got up on stage and was making people laugh. And I all of a sudden really felt like that was this great, fun experience and kind of opened my eyes to trying things out that may have been sort of uncomfortable or different. Yeah. And uh, it stuck with me. I guess the sort of success, right, of it stuck with me that people, you know, I mean, we're talking about fourth grade, but... <laughs> <laughs> it was sort of like, you're good at that. You know, that was fun. And you were happy doing it, right? So that was a thing. But no, I mean, later, I remember in eighth grade, we had to do some uh, presentation. It was like a communications class. And we all had to sort of pick a profession and sort of present it and talk about it. Mm-hmm. And they were all pretty dry. Most students like went up there and they had like a, a board and they would list things. And anyway, I probably because I was more just like a bad student and didn't really prepare much, I just played a crazy dentist and (laughs) I put this dummy together and basically pretended to be kind of like a la Chris Farley, just like a mad dentist and performed a crazy sort of dental operation in front of the class. And the the teacher was like, you should try out for the play. And so in ninth grade, I auditioned for the play and got the lead part. My school is funny. The two campuses, 7th through 9th, and then the other campus was 10th through 12th. Mm. So after ninth grade, I went to the upper school where people like Jake Gyllenhaal and Maggie Gyllenhaal had been and Jay Paulson, who's an incredible actor, and Jason Siegel. So all of a sudden, it was kind of like the big leagues, people who were having these careers. And Jake was the one on campus. Jake was a senior when I was a sophomore. And I think he was doing October Sky. He was like the lead of a movie Mm. and left the high school, I think, early because we were all going to do Fiddler on the Roof. And Jake ruined it. Jake, well, he he was going to be Tevya, right? Of course he was. Yeah, he was going to be Tevya. And I was Fiedka the Russian. But it was just very exciting. I'm going to be in a play with Jake Gyllenhaal. You know, it was like a big deal. 
But then he got some part in a movie and left, and he was replaced by a wonderful actor, Carrie Clark, who was amazing. Um, but uh, anyway, I was watching these people that I knew do it for a living, you mm-hmm. know, and it was very sort of attractive. But then it was Shakespeare. It was my junior year. I did Merchant of Venice and played Shylock. And then senior year, this sounds crazy, but we did King Lear and I played <laughs> King Lear. And uh, this teacher of mine, Ted Walsh, who was the theater director at the school and had become this kind of L.A. legend from the talent that came out of there. He became a real friend and mentor to me, right? Mm-hmm. And it it wasn't just the sort of glamour of working in film and television or something and watching Jake and Jason and Maggie, but it was more the art, you know, and the real fulfillment and the depth, how much I could get out of this, that, that there was a lifetime worth of discovery and fulfillment in this stuff. That was a real moment for me. And it was probably during Merchant of Venice, but I, I definitely attribute it to Shakespeare. Yeah. And that point on, it was over. This is it. I'm going to do this. Meanwhile, I should say, because we're going to talk about mass, I was always interested in making movies. I'd make home videos and For some strange reason, I didn't seem to sort of make the connection. Like, I'm an actor who likes to make these home videos. That was just more a fun thing to do. We we would just make kind of bloody shoot-em-up videos in my parents' backyard. I'm sure they loved that. (laughs) I mean, yeah. So I had braces, and you have those rubber bands that you kind of, like, connect. uh, Braces were awful. But do you remember those? I mean, I hated them, but you could get, like, pretty colors. Yes. So your mouth was decorated in pink and blue. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) I I don't know if I did colors, because I feel like you couldn't go too colorful with your braces. As a, as a boy or whatever. <laughs> but no, we would use the little packets. And this is disgusting, but our fake blood was milk and red food coloring. Ew. And so I know. And so we would, you know, we'd make these mafia movies. I was obsessed with Scorsese. So we'd have these kind of shoot 'em up scenes and I'd squeeze the packet and blood would like splatter all over the place. So anyway, I was I was always sort of interested in making movies and kind of assumed and sort of took it for granted that, hey, one day I'm gonna be an actor and then I'm gonna make movies. Do you <laughs> still have those home videos? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Unfortunately they're on like like VHS. I need to update oh, them to yeah. DVD. Yeah. But they're wild. I, I remember my dad watching some and saying, don't show your mother this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up loving, you know, action and horror. You know, I go to the TV or what do you call it? The video, you know, the, the video the store. store, the store, the right? Blockbuster. The, yeah. And I, I like to look at the back of the box. Be yeah. like, well, what's the craziest looking movie? How did the switch happen from this is something I truly love to this is professional? For the sake of our conversation, just being totally honest, and this is sort of not a regret, but I can sort of look at my maturity or immaturity, that I sort of took it for granted that it would be a job. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I sort of said, okay, well, if I'm good at it, if I'm now getting the leads at my high school the way Jake did or Jason did, then I'm going to have careers like them. It sort of stupidly or naively was almost that simplistic. So I went into college thinking, yeah, I'm going to be a professional actor. Good for me. And I love doing it. And I recognized how fortunate I was. But there was this definitely this level of sort of taking it for granted or not appreciating the value of work and effort. I grew disconnected from that, I mm-hmm. think. You know, I was probably having too much fun in college. And then I go back to Los Angeles, and a lot of people continue taking classes. And I just kind of like, it's just going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you flash forward in your 30s, and you're like, well, this isn't what I imagined. Then the kind of frustration and the rejection and these things sort of pile up. You start to have this very different relationship with the work and the dream than you did when you were 18. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
you went to Yale, right? Yeah. Were you in the drama school? No, I was um, I was an undergrad, and I, I don't regret this. I was a humanities major, which sounds like kind of BS, or just sort of what does that mean? It was— <laughs> Liberal arts. <laughs> a liberal arts major, because this idea that, oh, I'm going to be an actor. I know I'm going to be an actor. Yeah. But I don't want to do the theater studies major because I want to learn about other stuff while I'm here. And it wasn't some arrogant thing, like, I don't need it. I was constantly doing plays. I think I did, you know, four or five plays a year. I was in an improv group. I was in a comedy group. I did theater studies classes. There was a Shakespeare actor class and a professor, Murray Biggs, who was a, another mentor to me. But I, I truly wanted something else, and I didn't know how to be too specific. I didn't know how to be an art history or English major or philosophy. I kind of wanted a taste of everything. So for me, it was perfect. I just kind of was constantly trying to perform outside of this major. My first job was Frasier, which I lucked out. A casting director kind of came to Harvard-Westlake or sort of called Ted Walsh to say, who are the kids that I should see at your high school? God, that's where I should have gone to high school. I know. It's really messed up. <laughs> no, it's terrible. It's, it is terrible because most of my friends, they don't grow up in L.A. and go to this. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I have no advice. I did a play with a girl whose father was a producer. Yeah. I think he even came to my house and talked to me and my parents and said, Fran, I think you should do this. And he took me on a meeting to see an agent and then to a manager. And it's the same management company. That manager retired, but it's the same company and manager I've had since I was basically 18. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the producer you're talking about is Mark Platt. Yes. Oh, wow. Mark and Ted, these are people I feel you need someone to get your foot in the door. You need someone to stick their neck out for you. You need that connection or whatever. Those are those people. I still communicate with them in times of need. <laughs> I mean, I think that's what I don't think you have to say yet. You don't have advice because you've had a working career and you yeah. have advice to give. You just have a different path than other people. Yeah. But the concept of having a mentor versus doing it on your own, yeah. how do you think that makes a difference? Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to answer this like how it feels uh, right now in this moment. I probably lost a kind of humility and a kind of ability to be sort of stay grounded mm -hmm. in the early years. And I stayed in touch with Ted Walsh and you know, Mark Platt, but the idea of a real mentor, an active teacher, meaning that I am still a student or like I still have much to learn, that sort of departing from that, I think I lost sort of touch with probably reality a bit or humility, you know what I mean? Yeah. And sort of, you know, I took for granted some of the process and the, the work. I feel like I attached value to accomplishments and not effort. Mm. Do, you, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. And I think having a sort of teacher-student relationship, an active one, kind of constantly placing you in a position where you can continue to learn, continue to grow. And there was this sense of, if I'm being totally honest, oh, I'm really good at this. So it's just one day the perfect role is going to come around and it'll work and, and then I'll be fine. It's just like, a, that's just kind of absurd. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that maybe that happens for people. And then you do, you do kind of watch this overnight success happen. I mean, we all see yeah. it. That hasn't happened for me. I think jumping ahead to mass, this has been the most rewarding journey of my career. Easy. It's been the greatest accomplishment of my career. Easy. And... It's the hardest I ever worked on anything in my life. 
it came out of the inspirations for it had nothing to do with making movies. Yeah. It was this genuine need to know more about this thing that I feel is affecting all of us. Even this sort of abstract thing, not just the shootings and mass shootings, but just the division, forgiveness and resentment, just these big notions that I was just deeply immersed in at that time in my life and then came across this opportunity to tell a story. But years of frustration, I mean, years of watching the Oscars and thinking, damn, why aren't you making movies? Like you've dreamed your whole life of making movies. Next year, you're going to do it. Like next year, you're going to finish a script and you're going to make it, you know, and it's easier said than done. But I would get increasingly more frustrated. And I feel like I can look back on this experience, even if mass, whatever, I mean, no one's really going to the box office, but even if mass just sort of falls off the face of the earth tomorrow, it's still the most rewarding experience because I work so hard on it. I can very sort of empirically say, well, God, hard work pays off, you know? I could not say that about my 20s. I could not say that even about my early 30s. So going back to this idea of a mentor-student relationship, even just in an abstract way, it's just keeping yourself in a position where you are open to learning and humility and understanding still there's always room to grow and there's more work to be done, I think is sort of a much better mindset than one day it's all going to work out. Yeah. Yeah. Which nobody can blame you for that because your first titles out of the gate were huge films like The Village and Donnie Darko and Orange County. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And look, I know my attitude and I know I was capable of sort of probably thinking more highly of myself than I should at certain points along the way. But absolutely, you're getting great response. And there was a movie I did right out of college, the TV said, which it's like impossible to find. It's so good, sort of satire of the television industry. It's really funny. And David Duchovny, Judy Greer, Sigourney Weaver, Jake Kasdan wrote and directed it and just incredible people. And I had a, a really great great part. And there was a lot of freedom and improv on set. It was just this sort of experience where I was like, oh, I belong. But that doesn't mean you like take your foot off the gas. There's always more. There's always more you can do. There's always more effort. I really take a lot of inspiration from athletes that are always in the gym. Mm -hmm. You know, like Kobe Bryant was like this hero of mine because he was psychotic about his work ethic. But it took me a while to sort of recognize that. Is there, because you've worked with insane actors throughout your career, is there anyone specific that you can say watching them work or working with them really lit a fire? Yeah. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, without a doubt, I guess he's sort of the first that comes to mind. And talk about never taking your foot off the gas. And look, now we can kind of pull back and recognize what he was going through personally and with his addictions, what happened and how how sad and tragic it is. But it was interesting watching him do, and it's an intense play and a a very tough role, but he didn't, it wasn't fun. You know, Mm -hmm. there was, I remember early on people were saying, I don't know how this came up, but it was in the Death of a Salesman rehearsal and this idea that, you know, acting or theater is storytelling. And Phil was like, no, it's not. It's problem solving. We're problem solving. And it was just intense, you know. Yeah. I was like, oh, relax, dude. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like this was early, but it was so it just it summed him up, at least in that experience. And every day when we got into the show, he was there before everyone. He was on the stage. He was in the kitchen of the Loman house. And he he was sitting there with his head down looking into the script every day, every performance till the end. And I started to get there early just because I, I so admired him and I so loved being around him. I loved him and looked up to him so much. So I was like, I'm going to get there early. And like I couldn't beat him. You know what I mean? And I was like, I'll get there an hour early. And he was, he was always there. And eventually it was like, well, screw this. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, my, I mean, I like at least like have a life during the day. But he was there and he was working. And I remember late into the run, nearly 100 perform. I mean, really late into the run. We're walking up in Broadway houses. There's these stairways into the dressing rooms. And so the lesser actors are higher up or the smaller parts. And so like Phil's on the bottom floor, basically. Right. And it was the boys like Andrew, Finn and I were on the fourth floor. Andrew Garfield and Finn Whitrock. It's obviously not smaller parts, but it's sort of like, okay, you guys are youthful. You know, you can climb four stories. <laughs> and I'm going up these stairs and I'm like coming into my dressing room and a hand grabs me, my shoulder, and it's Phil. And he's followed me up to my dressing room after the show. And he's like, hey, what are you doing in that moment uh, with, with the tennis rackets? What are, you, what, are you, what are you doing? You're looking at the tennis rackets. And I, I'm like, wow, show's over. Like, what's going on? <laughs> and, um, and like, we're so far past this. There's a scene where he sees Bernard as I played Bernard, the neighbor, and he sees me as an older man and I'm this great success and I'm arguing a case in front of the Supreme Court and I got two boys and it's just, it's this vision of success that he's dreamed of and sort of the heartbreak with his own home and his own children and his own sons. And he asked me about tennis. He sees that I'm carrying tennis rackets. And I, I think, I forget exactly, I should remember, but the character Bernard just deflects it. He can mm -hmm. see how obsessed sort of Willie is with this object that speaks to success. And he knows Willie's history and he sort of knows what this is. And so he deflects it. He's essentially like, how are you doing, Willie? Like, let's not talk about the tennis rackets. Like, how are you? Are you okay? A very kind sort of gesture. And I was playing it where I'd turn and look at the tennis rackets trying to figure out, oh, my God, what do I do? This is so uncomfortable, and this poor guy, and this guy that was a father figure. And then I would come back, having decided, like, I'm going to handle this differently and sort of deflect. And anyway, so Phil was like, what are you doing? And I, I sort of told him that, you know, trying to think how to handle it. He was like, don't, please don't do that. Please don't do that. You know, you're smarter than that. Bernard is smarter than that. He's, he's many steps ahead of this situation. And if you just look me in the eyes... I'm going to like cry. But and if you just look me in the eyes and immediately deflect and know that I'm the one who needs help, if you do that, it will be crushing for me. You know oh what I mean? God. If you don't let me have this moment with the tennis rackets, it, it it's going to help me. I just don't know of many actors that far into a run who would care, who would sort of be still thinking and still deeply trying to excavate the part and the story. It was just incredible. And he was, of course, he was right. You know, so the very next night, it was crushing, but it was also sort of beautiful. And it's this man trying to help this other man and how these sort of roles have reversed. But so that's a guy, you know, being in the gym before everyone else, you know, that's the sort of Kobe Bryant thing, you know, that, that had really stuck with me. And again, I mean, I probably was still screwing around a whole lot. And, and it took a while to really sort of be able to put that into my own life, that kind of work ethic. But I recognized it. It yeah. left a mark. It left a mark, yeah. 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 <laughs> In the abstruse land of Aru, <laughs> full of regal countrysides and rayless forests. Ha! Miss me! The once halcyon days now gone. Your hand is mine now. <laughs> Get him out of here. And people resolve to lives separated from each other. We all know how dangerous the magic can be. It's best the child comes with us. No! A prophecy passed down, followed by believers. You're a prophecy hunter. It has to be part of something bigger. If I let myself think they died for nothing. Will set forth the path for the one. I had a dream. 
I was the chosen one. I saw myself saving everyone. <laughs> of course you did. Leading the land of Aru back to its days of yore. Don't miss Carcerum, a brand new fantasy fiction podcast now streaming everywhere. Cabin in the Woods and mm -hmm. Dollhouse. Obviously, those were really fun roles to play. I hope they were fun. Not yeah. obviously. I don't know. No, your no. Life. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then you kind of got a reputation as like the quirky, funny horror yeah. guy. Yeah. Was that something you enjoyed and could lean into? Was that something you felt stuck in? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I did enjoy it. Like I said earlier, I'd go to the video store and look at the horror films and be like, whoa, that one looks crazy. I want to watch that. So getting Cabin in the Woods, I remember when I saw that script because it was very secret. And then when I was in the final like screen test, I got the script and I, I thought... I will never get over this if I don't get this part because it was the greatest script I'd ever read, you know. <laughs> I still have it. It was just genius. And that part. And Marty yeah. was just, are you kidding me? Like, I was very <laughs> happy with the part halfway through, uh -huh. you know. I was like, this is amazing. And then to see what happened, I just, I was like, oh, my God, this is, I'll, I'll never, I'll never get over this. So luckily that worked out. So I, I embraced it a lot. And then I started to, maybe this was a bad thing but kind of resign myself. It's like being in a relationship, any career probably, but just speaking for myself and acting, it feels like sometimes you're in this kind of abusive relationship, you know, mm -hmm. where it's so much rejection. I have so many disappointing stories. I've been fired. I've been dropped from agency. You know what I mean? Like there's just so much baggage. You, you start to have to rethink what is fulfilling and what is going to be a happy life. And like, you know, just kind of having to ground yourself and sort of be like, well, this is what it is. And I would sort of both resign myself, but also say, hey, I like these movies. Yeah. And like if I'm going to be in horror films, and, you know, play stoners or mad scientists or what have you, that's great. It can be fun and entertaining, and I do enjoy it. I'll do a low-budget horror film, and I do have fun, and, and we laugh on set. You know what? That's going to be good enough. And then at the same time, there's this part of me that is thinking, well, you fell in love with this because of Shakespeare, because of King Lear. You did Death of a Salesman on Broadway. There's this other part of you that wants to go much deeper mm. and tell really meaningful stories and be immersed in that as a storyteller, as an actor, or as a writer. There's this whole other side of you that is unfulfilled, no matter how you'd like to frame it to live with yourself. <laughs> that was tough. I remember during Death of a Salesman, Cabin in the Woods came out because Cabin in the Woods had been delayed. Like MGM sold it and Lionsgate bought it and it was just this whole thing. And so it came out, I remember Peter Travers, who was at Rolling Stone at the time. I don't know if he's there anymore, but you know, I grew up seeing Peter Travers quotes. Mm -hmm. and it was like a big deal. He, he was one of the legitimate critics, right? And so he had a review of Cabin in the Woods. It was like the proudest moment of my career <laughs> at that time that he said, you haven't lived until you've seen Fran Kranz. And then in parentheses, currently on Broadway and Death of a Salesman, wield a bong in Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> and uh, it was the coolest thing, first of all, for him to even say my name, but to recognize that this ridiculous kind of stoner character in this crazy horror film is currently in Death of a Salesman. And to like that juxtaposition or whatever that is, that felt like that's it. That's the dream. Yeah. Like that is really the dream. And now with Mass, I love it when I hear a review or do some press and someone says, I just can't get over the stoner from Cabin in the Woods <laughs> made this movie. You know, things like that. That's the best. 
I mean, my revelatory moment as an actor when I was doing Merchant of Venice in high school, Ted Walsh, you know, the, that mentor of mine, he pulled me aside one night and he put on Oliver Twist, the old Oliver with Alec Guinness playing Fagin. Mm. And he was like, I want you to watch this. And I only knew Alec Guinness as Obi-Wan Kenobi. And then to see him transformed, I couldn't I couldn't believe it. That that was sort of this groundbreaking moment for me of like, this is acting. You can transform. And so the diversity, I guess, the versatility that he showed, Guinness, that felt to me like the pinnacle. You can be both of these things. These are sort of the most meaningful things to me. So I try to move forward now without that sort of resignation, without that sense of you're the horror film guy. Now it's if you put in the work and make the effort and you don't have to just be that guy. You know what I mean? That you have range and not just as an actor, but as a storyteller. Like now you can maybe write and direct. And so I feel like my career and my life as a person, as just a human being has sort of opened up in many ways as I've sort of grown and mature and it, it you know it took 35 years but there you go whatever it's <laughs> really not long at all I mean it's not so bad <laughs> but it, no and it, it's not like I'm some now evolved person I'm still totally a mess like I don't know how to get my life back on track after mass like you know I haven't paid insurance or like taxes you know so my life is falling apart but no I, I feel like I'm having a sort of second chance or second phase you know that this is a sort of a new chapter of my career and thankfully I take it so much more seriously. Yeah. Now I'm really working hard, yeah. you know. The concept of fulfillment when you're searching for something as an actor and then to find this new role as a writer and director, are they separate or is this kind of you've become something else? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, so I just did the show about Julia Child for HBO Max and it's the only job I've had now post-mass. It's kind of confusing because of the pandemic, but so I guess Mass was shot first, and then I went off to do Julia during the pandemic, and it was so different. Mm. I mean, even the producer called me on it. Chris Kaiser was like, yeah, friends moonlighting as an actor. But there was <laughs> there was an element that it was sort of true because in, in some ways I kind of felt like now having directed, oh, just shut up and do your job. Know your lines and sit down and do not slow production down. That is your job as an actor. You are such a small part in this process. So, so I wonder how these things will further integrate themselves. Maybe one day they will feel more cohesive mm-hmm. at the moment. They feel like different hats. They feel very distinct. You know, I'm, I'm proud of what I did on Julia, and I think the show's going to be great. Sarah Lancashire is amazing playing Julia Child. But I, it felt like I was playing a, a very specific role in a much larger production, sort of a cog in a machine kind of thing. Mm. Whereas directing, I mean, with Mass, look, the, the production company is me. It's a single member LLC. I just formed a company online, put some money into a bank account. <laughs> you know, I'm a producer, a writer, director. I have my hand in everything. I hope to never do that again, you know, and, and delineate more responsibility or just be a director. But it's very hard to sort of distinguish the two at the moment. To go into the writing, though, we have a listener question from mm-hmm. Olivia Gadsden. And she is actually two questions. Mm-hmm. She said, as an actor, what helped you learn to write? And did you consider things a non-actor might not consider? Huh. Yeah, it's a great question. I think I only know how to write as an actor, whatever that means. It was essentially improvisation, right? I sort of could see these characters and then would kind of play out dialogue in my head. I mean, I think all writers must do this and sort of see the person or even put a real actor in place and you write what they feel they would say, which is like improvisation. I think as an actor, 
you have a whole world that you're bringing to it. You have a whole life that you're bringing to a character, no matter how big it is. You know, there's no small parts, only small actors, right? There's a funny, I can't be really true, but this story about Streetcar Named Desire, the opening, a critic was late and missed the show. And so he snuck backstage, and at the end of Streetcar, Blanche is taken off to the insane asylum, I guess, a sanatorium by a doctor, but it's this small part at the end of the play. And anyway, the critic goes to the stage door, and you find someone walking out, and he says, hey, hey, what was the show about? And the guy goes, well, it's about this doctor, you see. <laughs> right? And so I think that's what you have to bring to performance. And so for Mass, I have these four people, these two couples who have very different perspectives on one event. And one side feels a great deal of blame and maybe hate towards the other. They are at odds. And I wrote them as leads. I wrote them as four protagonists. I wrote them with dignity. I wrote each of them trying to desperately plead their case. I would take passes at a draft writing for Richard, just thinking through Richard's journey, then a draft thinking through Gail's and then Jay's and then Linda's. All of these characters, including the supporting characters, the, the people setting up the meeting, I devoted a great deal of time to who they were in their lives outside of the story, you know, mm. and what they brought to it and what the information they lived with and what they knew or what they didn't know. I don't know how to say it. There was a kind of um, equivalence to these people, and I believed in their lead qualities, which I think is something you have to do as an actor. You know, when you're playing a villain, I haven't really played a lot of villains, but you'll hear this, that y you don't kind of just say, yeah, I'm the bad guy. You know, I'm, I'm just a psychopath or a sociopath. You have motivations. Mm -hmm. Okay, Hotspur. I mean, you know, he's sort of the villain, I guess, of Henry IV Part One. I played him in college. To this day, it's still one of my favorite parts. It was so painful to die, to let Hal beat me. Mm -hmm. I hated dying. It was so emotional. I felt like this guy in nine out of ten plays is the hero. Like, fuck Hal. <laughs> he, he's so worthy. He's just got some tragic flaws. He's got these problems. He's got his temper. He doesn't have a sense of humor about himself. There's blind spots that ultimately is why he meets his demise. But man, I love that guy. And so he's not a perfect example. It's not like Iago. But you just don't say like, yeah, I'm the bad guy and I'm servicing this play by getting killed by the good guy. Anyway, this is very long-winded. But treating your characters with that full three-dimensional world, but also the respect as like human beings, you know, with uh, real complex feelings and histories, I think is, is sort of essential. So the seed of this came from the Parkland shootings, right? Yeah, yeah. And you were so obsessed with it that you just started researching, and that's kind of where it came from. I'm kind of most curious of how did you take care of yourself? Like, I know you were a new dad, and this is a very scary thing to be researching. Yeah. How did you take care of yourself during this? I mean, I don't know if I did. <laughs> I don't know. It's funny. Like, I don't sleep well. You know, I didn't—there were so many nights I would read something— and feel as if I just took like a bunch of speed. My mm -hmm. heart was racing. I could not sleep. And I generally like to read before I go to bed. And so there were so many nights where I was like, oh, well, shit, that's it. I'm done. I'm up all night. This was the worst thing I think I've ever read. Sue Klebold's book about Columbine was just terrifying. Yeah. It's just terrifying. And um, reading about Sandy Hook, there would be moments I said, okay, I just, I, I, I wish I didn't know that now. You know what I mean? And you'd sort of feel like you had crossed some line. Sort of on the other side of it, I would kind of say, okay, well, you have to do this now. You know what I mean? Now I can't, I can't stop. And I have to put every, everything into this. 
because of what I just read, you know, because of this thing now that's in my mind, you know, <clears throat> I, I now I now I have to see this through and give it everything. It sounds kind of masochistic or something. The, the suffering was sort of so closely related to the work and the sort of work ethic. This is real. These people did this. Now I need to honor that. This happened to people. And I'm just sitting here trying to develop some fictional story. I better give it absolutely everything if I'm going to show any kind of respect to the real survivors and communities, right? Yeah. I mean, look, I came into it in this really um, vulnerable place because I was so terrified. Being a new parent was overwhelming. I'm just being honest, speaking for myself, it made me realize what a selfish person I was. You know, I, I cared about myself. You know, I don't know. Like, like, now, the most important thing in the world was not me. It was this thing. I would sacrifice my life in an instant for this this thing all of a sudden. Yeah. You know, and it just completely changed everything for me. And it was overwhelming. And so I was a bit fragile in areas. You know, the sidewalk was scary. Looking after this child and as they become a toddler, it literally feels like suicide watch as they're just kind of like walking. You know what I mean? You're just like, what the? Uh, I forget who it was. Stop climbing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like taking a drunk friend out of the bar, you know, who said something super inappropriate. It's like just crisis management constantly. I just was like raw. And when I listened to this parent on the radio after the Parkland shooting, I literally had to pull over. You know, I was so overwhelmed. You say, write what you know. Well, my greatest fear was losing my child. I realized very quickly, oh, it's game over. If anything ever happens to her, it's game over. Yeah. You know, and that was f fucking scary. Yeah. My whole life, I got in lots of trouble, you know, <laughs> in school and in life. And I like to have fun, but I found myself in positions where you, your life gets made up of you know, regrets or mistakes and relationships get harder and more complicated because of that stuff. You start to feel like in many ways you're made up of these kind of resentments, you know, and the baggage you carry with you. And so this idea of forgiveness was heavily on my mind as well. When I learned about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in college, I was blown away by it in South Africa. I saw this documentary, Long Night's Journey, and today we were doing a crazy adaptation of Miss Saigon, and the director introduced us to this film, and I started reading Desmond Tutu's No Future Without Forgiveness because I wanted to know more about the amnesty hearings. And mm -hmm. this was this book he wrote kind of about the crafting of the TRC and his role in the, the commission. There were stories, and I'm going to forget names. There was one in particular of a girl, and this wasn't part of South Africa, but a girl who was uh, kidnapped and killed in Montana. And the mother forgave the man and didn't want to seek the death penalty. And I just said, no, I wouldn't do that. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think I would be capable of that. I don't think I could participate in the amnesty hearings, the restorative justice, this effort to just heal and forgive and reconcile. I, what it made me realize is, I guess what I'm saying is that knowing that I couldn't participate in that or fearing that I couldn't participate in that meant that I would also be kind of imprisoned to sort of hate and blame and resentment. What was the alternative? If I needed punishment and I needed retribution, there'd be no real satisfaction. There mm -hmm. would be no real way to like remove that pain. And that was a terrifying concept to think about. And I think this, you know, I'll speak for myself, but I feel like this must be true for all of us that forgiveness and resentment, this sort of balance to some degree is always present in our lives. At times it's very intense and we've screwed up or they've screwed up or whatever. And then at other times it's just kind of more minor, like, oh, I'm sorry I did that. But this is sort of part of the human process or experience. And so 
when I became a parent, it was back at that amnesty hearing level where I just kept thinking, if anything happens, how will I live? How will I continue? And when I'm hearing about this shooting, the worst imaginable circumstance, the most painful circumstance, well, what do I do? What do I do then? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and look, I, I, maybe I should be embarrassed or like I'm sharing too much or something about myself, but these are just the honest feelings yeah. of, of where this stuff came from because I was so scared of what would happen to me if I lost my child. And I was also so worried about the country that we were living in and the division and this sort of heated rhetoric that has become so common. Like, I, I feel like we've normalized hating people we don't know. Like, social media or online behavior feels like road rage in the sense, like, I'm driving down the street in L.A. and my windows are up and someone kind of cuts me off. And I, I'm like, you fuck, you know, I scream yeah. at them. I wouldn't do that on the sidewalk. And if that person sort of confronts me, I'd probably just look the other way, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And so there, I just sort of watch us all just, like, scream and yell and rip people apart. And I just feel like the increasingly isolated world we live in as we go online more and more and not physically connected as human beings, it just changes our behavior and the way we treat one another. And all these things were scaring me. I wanted to sort of tell a story very pared down about people just sitting at a table talking because that's what I saw at the amnesty hearings and that's what I saw when I came across these meetings doing research. I heard about parents of victims meeting parents of shooters. Not many. There's a few examples you can read online, or one was in Sue Klebold's book. And I thought, my God, that's the most extraordinary thing I could ever imagine. What the hell could they possibly say? How does that even work? And then making the connection to the amnesty hearing, and then just the fear I have about the country my daughter's going to grow up into, and the intensity of our division at this moment that feels unsustainable, unless we have a whole different mode of thinking about it. All those things were sort of the motivation. That's the movie. That's it. That's a movie. Because I, I want to believe that we can do this. I want to believe we can sit at a table with the people we feel differences towards or hate or blame towards and work through it to a better place. It, it's so necessary and urgent. You've talked about in the past, you know, you wanted to direct or you started writing things and they didn't necessarily get finished. Was this like the train started moving out of the station and it never stopped? Yeah, yeah. And I still feel like it hasn't. I mean, I feel this knot. There's like a knot in my stomach. I don't know how else to describe it. There's still something in there that's been there since three years ago or when I started reading about this stuff. So Parkland was February 2018. And I was that night was on Amazon ordering books. And then, you know, I had my moment reading about the day from Sue Klebold's perspective, Columbine, which I remember so distinctly, and then just not being able to sleep. So there's been that kind of feeling for three years now, because it's just like, I feel like I'm still actively working on this thing, promoting it. Some days I get so discouraged, you know, Mm Oh, the box office is so depressing, and I don't know if I can do this. What is it all for? The pandemic, so much of it's virtual. So, like, the press ends, and I'm alone in a room with a laptop. Mm. Like, what is this? It's just so surreal sometimes and feels kind of lonely for the amount of work that you put into it and the emotion. And then you have someone tell you they saw it and how moved they were, and it gets you back up again. Or... You know, it's funny, I was really dispirited just recently, feeling like, man, how far of a reach is this really having? But then the next morning, I'm writing all these people, being like, can we set up a screening? And I'm talking to the Hope and Heal Fund and Moms Demand Action. And I'm just, I'm I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I met this person. And he says he knew someone that worked on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And then I'm just like back to work, you know, just obsessively, just fighting and fighting and fighting for this movie. So, yeah, just, it left the station. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's interesting to hear the perspective of you're alone in a room and you're not necessarily hearing everybody's opinions because from my side, I've seen all over social media, like people are talking about it. I guess, and maybe this says something just about me. I like don't I don't know what that is. Like I don't know what the social media response is. Like I'm so desperate for the human connection. Right. And and maybe in an old world, you'd go to more screenings or you'd do more in person like this. Like we're actually with each other. Right. And this feels fulfilling and great. Yeah. And there's an element to just being here with you that has changed the whole nature of this experience that I did not have with another reporter or some other journalist that might have cared equally about the movie yeah. and my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then there's something that's just lost, obviously. And we're all sort of really painfully aware of this these days. But, you know, and I spoke about this earlier. I wanted to be a role model for my daughter, and I didn't want to be an actor that just waited around for phone calls and their happiness was dictated by someone else's decision. I wanted to show her that I was going to do the work myself and that I wanted to show her that happiness should be a, a result of effort and not accomplishment. And yet, <laughs> I find myself thinking, well, what if, what if this movie, you, you get award buzz, but what if it doesn't get nominated? What if it just sort of fades away? What do I do? Will I be happy? Like, what, what is the end of this journey? And if it's not this X, Y, or Z, am I going to be unhappy? And what happened to my own lesson that I was trying to teach myself of it's about effort, not accomplishment. So it's it's just strange. It just feels like I'm having sort of a daily identity crisis with yeah. the, the process. What's interesting about it is this movie isn't just about a shooting. It's about human connection and all of these things you just talked about. Yeah. The things you're thinking and feeling about the experience of creating your movie is kind of the same themes you're talking about in the movie. Yeah. Needing to connect to people. I mean, you're right. I mean, it says something about me. And my fears and my desires or hopes and fears. And it's definitely a snapshot of how I'm feeling and see the world today. But mm -hmm. I'd like to see more of. I think what these people do is extraordinary, but I'd love to see it be more ordinary. I think we have to put a greater premium or sort of have a bigger conversation about forgiveness and reconciliation. I truly don't know how we sort of get through this. And it's one of the reasons I believed in this sort of spiritual component to the film. You know, I'm not religious. I was raised going to church and it kind of faded away in my family, right? And I don't think I'm alone in sort of that experience. But I'd like to live a kind of spiritual life or think about these things. And it was important to me that the movie took place in a spiritual setting or a house of worship because I wanted it sort of nearby but not necessarily in the room. Mm -hmm. And I wanted these four characters, but I believe that their journey in the film to understand meaning, to find meaning in something that seems unexplainable or senseless feels like a spiritual pursuit. And having a relationship with ideas greater than yourself or sort of understanding there are powers and things that are sort of outside of yourself and these mysteries of life and the universe, I think it leads to a kind of humility, which leads to an interdependence, which is our need for one another. And I'm sort of desperate for that awareness in the world. Can we possibly push away from these online platforms and the sort of substrate we all seem to be existing in maybe too much? Or is there a way, and now I'm sort of getting way off topic, but <laughs> these algorithms that sort of reinforce hyper-individualism, is there a way that we can have more altruistic algorithms that sort of direct us towards compassion and sort of empathy, yeah. kind of try to connect us? I guess that's probably not very marketable, but it feels 
feels like how can we stay connected and put some greater value on community and one another. I'm, I'm sort of a mess and very concerned about the path we seem to be on. And it probably is reflected in the movie and the sort of this the sensitivity or intense emotion of the movie. Did you find any healing for yourself in the movie? I mean, you know, it's funny because I don't know if I'm any more capable of forgiveness. I'd like to think so. And sort of life after forgiveness, the promise of there can be great healing and letting go of pain. But I don't know if I'm put to the test in the hardest of situations. I still don't know. What so struck me about doing all this was the compassion and empathy I, I had for these people, mm -hmm. parents of the shooter, and in some cases, you know, the, these perpetrators. You feel like it gets harder and harder to imagine that if you were in the similar or same sets of circumstances, you wouldn't find yourself in a similar or same situation. Yeah. And sort of knowing that, you know, allowing for that truth or perspective can kind of lower the temperature by which we sort of judge one another. I mean, we all kind of... We sympathize with the victims, of course, because we sympathize with our own pain. And that's kind of the problem, is that it's much harder to feel others' mm -hmm. pain, you know, and that, it, it, that it's harder to recognize and harder to keep track of. That, that kind of keeps us apart. The practice or function of making this movie has been very much living with and paying attention to other people's pain, right? And the writing, the shooting, the editing, and the promoting feel so attached to a story of such emotion that it's hard not to carry that intense sensitivity into my daily life. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old. Today, felt like I'm magic read extended from her fingertips down to the you base have to of take my care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but drink. Her fingers were facing me. You feel like your purpose and your worth is really being going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the beauty of rock cool. climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. Let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time. pivot slightly because we're talking about the four people, the casting in this, Martha Plimpton, Ann Dow, Jason yeah. Isaacs, and Reed Burney. It's a masterclass in acting, in, uh, I think it's a masterclass in emotion in general. And, yeah. and I guess I'd love to just hear about your experience in working with these four actors and how yeah. you created these characters with them. Yeah, they were amazing. I mean, I wrote the part for Reed because I knew him from doing theater in New York. We, I mean, we hadn't worked together, but we knew each other and we're, and we're buddies. He's incredible. If you've ever seen him on stage, he's like one of the great theater actors alive and so natural and so subtle. And I was looking for that. I wanted real life. I wanted this sort of illusion of reality and to make the audience feel like they're at the table and can't believe what they're witnessing because it feels so real, right, in, in both dialogue and performance. And so 
Reed was perfect. I didn't know the other actors. I sort of had other people in mind from the New York theater community. And then when sort of the time came around, you have no money. I, I've never directed anything. And so you kind of just are sort of left to see who's available because it's hard for people to take a leap of faith on a first-time director with this material too. Mm-hmm. You know, it'd be one thing if it was just sort of funny comedy and, okay, it'll be fun. But no, oh my God, I, this is going to tear us apart. This is going to be very intense experience. I have to trust this person. I would get lists from agencies, and I never, never imagined a cast like this, truly. I remember seeing Martha Plimpton's name right out the gate and just saying yes and could never look back. And I remember growing up and running on empty in a scene with her in River Phoenix, and there's so much emotion that she sort of doesn't show. Mm-hmm. Kind of even as this, I don't know, she's like a teenager then or something. But there's so much raw emotion that is kind of underneath the surface that she sort of contains. And there's this great quote from Kazan. He has a book on directing where he wrote a letter to the cast of Death of a Salesman, like a few hundred performances in. He came back to visit and he writes them this letter tearing them apart, being like, you t- you all lost it. You've all become so indulgent. And he wrote the actor playing happy. Men don't cry. Actors do. And it's oh. this amazing line. And Martha sort of, that's what that moment was to me is Martha withholding all this because that's how people behave. Anyway, I just thought of that and everything else that she's done and she's amazing and I was like my god that's Gail and I never looked back and I met Jason for coffee in LA and he honestly scared the shit out of me because he just talked (laughs) like a mile a minute and was just picking apart the script and I was like I can't do this this guy no he's like he doesn't he doesn't even like this thing and then I sort of got over myself and realized this is the job and he's going to make it better because he is picking it apart Mm -hmm. and he cares and he wants to do it and you should be so lucky to have Jason Isaacs in your movie and he's going to make you work and so it was that kind of reminder of, no, you have to do the work. Like, you have to defend this. And if he's right, you should own it. You should acknowledge it. And then, and Dowd came last. I always had trouble imagining Linda. And I think it speaks to the complexity of the role and the, just the amount of grief and guilt and how complicated her sort of journey is. I think she, she loves her son, you know, yeah. and she has to reconcile that with his actions. And she feels ashamed for loving her son, but as a mother, she can't help it. Mm-hmm. And so sort of reclaiming that role and that identity and saying, I can do this still. I can still love him despite what he did. And it just wasn't like a, an easy person out there to be like, oh, she'd be a great Linda until I saw her name. And I think a lot of it had to do with getting my other three actors first and also knowing the location and Idaho and the mountains and the setting that we found and where this woman is and trying to isolate and that she's had to sort of leave her life to go on this journey to reclaim herself. It was just perfect. And she's obviously out of this world. And I mean, that was the best thing I did is sort of recognize how lucky I was. And we had a two and a half day rehearsal where I just tried to tell them, hey, whatever doesn't work, tell me and we'll fix it. And you know, I asked them, where, where are you confused? Where do you feel like a beat's missing? Where do you want to say something? And let's say it. We'll write it. So it was not totally improvisation. It was just making sure they had every step they needed to carry them to this emotional place because they had to do this. And I wanted to leave them in the room as much as possible. I didn't want to be in the room. I wanted the AD calling action and cut. I wanted to treat it like a love scene, take out all the inessential crew members. You know, they're 10, 15 minute takes sometimes. So it, it was like live performance. So the best thing I could do was just prepare them by giving them what they needed. It required me to be sort of flexible, but I found in reflecting on it, there's quite a bit of space, I think, before you compromise your vision. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And the script was obviously good enough to get these four actors on board. So it wasn't as if we had to rewrite the thing. It was just making sure, you know, if Anne, there was a speech about her trying to work on a suicide hotline, a suicide prevention center, and it was just confusing to her. 
And eventually you just cut it. You know, it's like, well, you know, it's not worth it. It's not worth you having a false moment. Don't do it for me, the writer. Don't do it because it's your job. Let's just get rid of it. Jason, there was a period where he was listening to Richard and Linda talk about the day of the shooting. And he looked at me saying, why? I don't want to listen to this. Why am I listening to this? And so we just wrote that in. You know, he has that honest reaction. He's allowed to have it. Martha needed a moment towards the end because she thought the forgiveness, does it come too easily? These people are torn apart. They're tragic. Why should it be so hard to forgive them? Mm-hmm. And so we had to we had to sort of work together. And finally, we had this realization that it's not even about them. It's about her. It's about her pain. And then, you know, when we got that thing that clearly she needed something, she needed some sort of articulation of the moment. And when she had it, Martha did that whole scene through to the end. That was that was a day, you mm-hmm. know, and that woman, Martha, did this all day long, weeping. It was superhuman. And for the most part, you know, I'm not telling Martha Plimpton how to cry. I mean, she's a better actor than I am, you know. So I'm, I'm kind of trying to service her in ways and respect the actor and what they can do. Like great actors have great instincts, you know. And another great quote, this old English director, Granville Barker, I got this from Richard Nelson working with him at the Public Theater who gave me a lot of great notes on the script and was a big inspiration for this. But Granville Barker said, let him realize the more he can ask of the actor, the more he will gain of his play. And it's just this beautiful, empowering thought for actors, but writers, directors, everyone that, again, great actors have great instincts. I knew I had great actors. So I I really just tried to listen to them and and craft it based on their concerns. In that, because I asked, you know, earlier how you took care of yourself, did you find yourself in any way having, I don't know if the urge or the need or whatever to take care of your actors? You know, I was so naive at first. So we shot the conversation chronological order at the end of the shoot. So Anne Dowd has a scene at the end of the movie that's after the conversation in the room. The room conversation is about 75 minutes, but there's some movie after. It's a pretty intense scene. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of the first thing she did. Oh. And I was walking up to her being like, you know, I think, um, blah, blah, you know what I mean? And uh, And then later in the shoot... When I realized this woman is like an open channel with this character's grief, I mean, Anne would completely weep in a rehearsal and it would just happen. And she talks about it and she talks about it doing press that there's almost like a possession. Like she says that Linda, the character, was very generous to her and just oh, came, wow. came when she needed her. Yeah. The way she speaks about it, it I, I honestly, I haven't really seen anything quite like it. She's not method. You know, she was kind of Anne in between takes, but I started to become more aware of as time went on, oh man, this is very intense what happens to her when it takes hold, yeah. you know, and she kind of catches the wave. And so then I became more sort of trepidatious. I was sort of more careful about what I'd say. And there would be times, you know, I was in another room. So I had to kind of do this little walk down a hallway kind of in. And I would be in my head saying, as an actor, do you want to hear this? Would you want really want to hear this right now? And many times I'd get to the table and honestly just like pretend I was there to talk to someone else. <laughs> and, you know, and just like look at the DP and be like, yeah, so, you know, um, because it, it just felt like this might not be worth it. Yeah. You know, and that it might not be the right thing to say. And she just cried for 10 minutes or something. You know what I mean? Because I, I told my hair and makeup, like, look, don't do last looks every take. Like, just when they need it, we'll know. We'll see on the monitor. You got to go in and fix that little strand of hair. And for wardrobe, same thing. Like, let's really just let them be. 
And I sort of had to apply that to myself, even when I wanted to say something or was not satisfied completely and really was looking for that delivery, just trying to finally ultimately realize, like, we have a whole shoot here and sort of picking your battles and recognizing, again, that flexibility of vision that, you know what, you heard it in your head differently. Mm -hmm. If you're not able to convey that, you only have so many takes. We had a 14-day shoot. There you go. Well, you didn't get it. You're going to live with that. And I'll tell you, looking back... I have no idea what I could have ever possibly been concerned about on that mm-hmm. set, which is a really interesting thing because there were plenty of times where you'd be at the video monitor just being like, oh, shoot, you know, oh, no, I need uh, uh, and I can't think of a single problem <laughs> now. Yeah. And it's, it's just really interesting. I would if I went back to make another movie. I would really try to hold that close. I'm sure it's impossible. I'm sure you get caught up and think, no, I really need this. I need this. The reality, I think, is the thing is this sort of collaboration, and it's much more organic between the principal players in each moment. Some producer told me, I don't even know if this is true, but if everyone guesses the amount of jelly beans in a jar, that the most accurate, the real answer, okay, the average of everyone's guess is closest to the accurate number of jelly beans. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> and he was like, this is a real thing. This is like a scientific principle. But in essence, the, the metaphor to movie making is really kind of apt and nice because it sort of is. It's sort of like everyone's idea is helpful. And like even bad notes or notes that I kind of hated helped me see the movie in different ways. Even when you incorporate something, you'd be like, okay, I'll sort of acknowledge this and sit with this, but it might help refine the vision because you dislike it so much. And so I think there's something to be said for being a little more open in the process and as a whole. You know? Who are you getting notes from? I mean, is that a big part of it, of make sure you trust the person giving the yeah, notes? Yeah, this would be in writing, and then this would be in editing, I guess, more than anything. And then with acting, you know, when I would get pushback from an actor saying, well, I, I thought this or I saw this, in that rehearsal process, I'd have a sidebar with Jason Isaacs, and we'd see something differently. And there's a moment in the movie, I mean, literally the very last moment of the movie, I think Jason and I do disagree about where his character is, like to this day. Like, I know we do. Yeah. And we fought about it and we kind of talked about it. And I watched the movie and it doesn't matter. And I've had people come up to me and tell me exactly what I felt it was. And I've had people come up to me and speak about it sort of the way Jason believes it is. Yeah. And that's great. And you can't really tell the difference. It's about what you feel. I think trying to sort of recognize that and the crafting of it and the note receiving process, I think is really helpful. I mean, I never wanted to leave the room. I didn't want flashbacks. I didn't want inserts. I didn't want to score. But I was always told you can't do that. It's not going to work. It's going to be boring. I mean, most people, even people that supported it, encouraged me to like get some inserts. You know, mm-hmm. you never know. You might need it. You know, that kind of stuff. Or let's just hear a score, you know, stuff like that. And finally hearing about you might want to leave the room, I saw this field in my head. I thought, well, maybe when they talk about the shooting, maybe the event is the moment we leave. And it's sort of evolved over time, and now it's become this very meaningful image to me, recurring image in the movie, this idea that we never really get over grief. It doesn't just disappear one day. We just live with it differently. And it's sort of a part of us, and it's sort of it's just something we carry, but we can live with it maybe more easily. And so we watch this image that if we sort of find our parents there in this place— And it could just be a place down the street, which it was literally from the church, (laughs) but it could also be something else. It could also be this sort of emotional state, this landscape of grief, this kind of human subterranean seen as a landscape. 
I rolled with this idea. I really sort of, it became a thing that's very important to me and plays a part over the evolution of the film. And it's something that I was rejecting flatly for, yeah. for like a year. And then all of a sudden it just kind of enters you the right way and it changes so much. Even though most people are like, what the hell was that about? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. So my final question, you kind of answered it throughout the whole previous conversation, but I ask everybody this and I love it. What does it mean to you to have a life in storytelling? Oh, man. I, uh, I mean, it just feels like it's how we make sense of things. And it's been my mode or way of making sense of my life as long as I can remember. Gosh, what a heavy question, sort of makes me emotional because as an artist it's sort of impossible to differentiate life from storytelling so I, I it's like I can't I can hardly make the distinction and maybe I have my head in the clouds way too often and daydream and I'm fantasizing about movies I want to make ever since I was a kid and like Star Wars was the movie you know and I watched it on beta and then on VHS and I've just I've seen it countless times. There's this whole idea of, because I kept saying, I've been down. I've been kind of down on the movie. Is it really having a reach? Uh, the pandemic, it's so strange. I don't feel the connection the way I thought maybe you could. And y will I be disappointed if it doesn't win an award or get nominated, these things? And then people saying, friend, this movie's going to be around forever. And like, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> that worries me because I don't, if I'm just being totally honest, I don't know how to get satisfaction from that. Like I said, so much of this came out from sort of fear and anxiety, really deep, deep concern about our country. I don't have any authority to really offer anything. I'm not in any kind of public office. I don't know how to actually help. So I tell a story about it. I tell a story about what I want to see and what I need to see. You know, storytelling, it's sort of like this kind of desire to communicate some better alternative or some hopeful alternative, some hopeful path forward. Yeah. It's such a great question, and I, it's what makes me sad is I have no idea how to even make the distinction, which, which I mean, like that feels like a really good reflection of who I am or sort of that, that gives me great insight into who I am and that I, I sort of feel like my whole life is made up of storytelling for good and for bad, you know? Yeah. Know. Well, Fran, thank you so much for joining me today. It has meant so much to be in person in studio with you. The movie is mass. It is out in theaters. Everyone should see it. It is amazing. It really was wonderful having you. Thank you for being so open. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. Hollywood Unscripted is created by Kirkco Media. For a full list of our credits, please check out our show notes or our website, kirkco.com. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. <laughs> <laughs>